0: All right. Well, we continue on in Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter five. We're going to be covering the first seven verses today. And it's a nice little change of pace. Uh, the first five chapters, for those of you, or the first four, for those of you who have been with us, you know, um, it's been hard. It's been a little bit difficult to get through because Solomon hits us right where most of us are or have been or might be uh, soon. The American dream, chasing after all kinds of things that we have the privilege uh, of, in many cases, being able to experience here on earth. Um but not being able to find satisfaction in them and not being able to even view them in a healthy way uh, for a lot of us because we're, again, trying to find more than what they can truly offer. And so we're going to switch it up a little bit today and talk about um, listening. Now, like... Most passages, there's lots of themes and sub-themes, and as a preacher, to some degree, I could kind of pick and choose um, what we would emphasize on any given time. I could preach this text tonight ten different times and have uh, ten different sub-themes. One that's probably the most predominant over all of these um, would be that God is God and you're not, so stop trying, but that's not as appealing when it comes to um, people wanting to come in here. So... um I settled for the lost art of listening. It's all in the same vein, and you'll see exactly tonight where um, there's lots of good stuff to glean from this. Let me ask you, are you a good listener? Like, would your friends and family say that, that you're good at listening? Let's be honest. In our culture, the standards are pretty low. Um, like, if you're simply uh, in the same room and you have a pulse um, and you're not talking, like that's that's considered good listening for, for many um, there's, um, there's a struggle with it. When I was a kid, like many of you, I played Simon Says on occasion. You ever play that game? Isn't that a silly game? The fact that like anyone even, even thinks about playing that game is weird because it's, it, all you've got to do is literally exactly what Simon Says. That's all you got to do. Like There's no, well, here's the point system, and if you do this and that, you can get more points than the other person. And No, it's literally whoever can listen. And obey wins. And yet the reason we play that over and over and over is because how many of us are good at it? No, we're not. We put our hand up on our head and they say, okay, now put your hand on your belly. And I was like, oh, they do. Oh, Simon didn't say it. like, Oh, gosh, Simon got me again. And we just think, wow, what a hard game. What a hard game. We struggle with it. Our society struggles with it. And in the church, we struggle with it. But if you think about relationships, how important talking is, But if there's another person involved, listening is 50% of it, right? And if you judged your relationship with God simply on uh, listening alone, how healthy would it be? Would you still have a prayer life if you didn't talk in your prayer, but you just listened? For some of us, we only come to God when we have something to say. And yet the saints throughout the centuries have uh, practiced the art of listening and experienced the power and presence of God in ways that many of us just can't relate to. Um, I remember when I was in Utah years ago, uh, we had an opportunity, a couple uh, famous people in the evangelical world, famous. Um, a couple of you, some of you might recognize the names. They had written a whole bunch of books and, and been on CNN and all over the place and whatnot. And if they would have been preaching in the South, Um, or really anywhere else in the U.S., they would have hundreds of people come to hear them because they were pretty well known. But they came out to Provo uh, for those of us planning churches out there, and we were able to come talk to them. And so they came and they preached, and there was just like 50 of us. And it's like, wow, this was unique. It was an intimate environment. And I knew these guys, like they have all kinds of wisdom that I wanted to glean from. And when you're out in a desert place like Utah, um, spiritually and physically, like you just, you want to be poured into. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. I had it marked on my calendar. I'm like, this is going to be good. We're in this tiny little church with these guys who people would love to be able to sit in the same room as them. And me and these other pastors were invited and we're going to hang out. And so they preached their sermon and did their thing. And then afterwards, um, those in the community who came, they, they left and these guys hung out and said, okay, pastors, let's, let's go downstairs. And they had this kind of fellowship hall area and I just want to talk to you guys. So there's like 15 of us. And we're sitting there, and all of us, as we look at each other, we're like, this is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Like, we get to talk to these guys, and I'm thinking, what are they going to tell us? Like, we got an hour or two with them. What are they going to say to us? And they made a mistake. They made a mistake that you can't make around preachers. They asked questions to us. And although we came to hear from them, they asked, tell me, what's it been like for you guys out here in Utah? Oh, man. When you uh, you know how that goes, you're opening up a can of worms. So at first it was just five, ten minutes. Different guys, popcorn style would be like, "Well, here's my experience, and we need more of this. And if we could get some help here, and that'd be a great thing." And then like fifteen minutes down the road, it's like, "Okay, now another guy. hey, we got this and this." And then and then you even want to speak a little bit, but you just want it to stop because you want them to speak. But everyone's talking, and then like thirty minutes down the line, you're like, "Okay, seriously, like guys, we gotta we gotta stop." So you're giving each other like the nonverbal cues of like, "Stop talking." Just don't talk. An hour goes by. Hour and 15 minutes go by. They never talked to us about anything because we took all the time blabbing about our experience out in Utah and then told them thanks and they left. You ever been there? You ever been wanting to glean from someone more wise than you, more more holy than you, someone who you could just sit under their teaching and you just want to take notes, but people around you are just talking and you just want to be like, shh, just be quiet. Just stop talking. And the big idea tonight is Solomon saying, that's us with God. You've got the God of the universe who has more wisdom and knowledge than any created being could ever imagine. this amazing God who gives us access to him through his Son Jesus, and we could talk to him anytime, and we can go with him anywhere we want, and we can be with him, and we can just sit and listen and glean, and yet we just talk, 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 talk. And Solomon's tone in these verses, it's kind of rough. It's a little bit like that TV show, Scared Straight. You ever watch that? Where they take all the teenagers into the jail and just let them hang out for a day or two and like, try to really pound into them the seriousness of where they are. And Solomon's trying to get our attention saying, do you guys understand how incredibly powerful the presence of God is? And sometimes it's good to be serious about that. So as we walk through this tonight, I want to ask that you ask yourself, What am I missing out on? Maybe I'm not hearing from God because I'm not listening to God. Maybe he's not showing up because I'm not giving him room. Maybe when I meet with him, it's more about me than it is him, and so I leave just as discouraged as I came in. Maybe I'm a little bit apathetic spiritually because I pour out to him but I don't ever get filled up because I don't listen to them. So, it's a good heart check. Let's talk about the lost art of listening. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open up to Ecclesiastes five one. Uh, normally, I preach out of the ESV for this series because it's just a hard book to walk through. We're walking through it in the NLT, the New Living Translation. And verse 1 says, As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open, and your mouth shut. Is, is the Bible straightforward? Does it, I, I feel like it's just very, very clear. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It is evil to make mindless offerings to God. First thing we see is access is a privilege. When it comes to God, having access to Him is a privilege. It's serious. Sometimes we take it for granted. When you get so used to it, you ever been able to have access to something that most people don't? And the joy of being one of the few that get something that others don't? This past weekend, um, like each summer, my family, uh, my side of the family anyway... Does a Kansas City trip where we just do like an overnight trip. My brother lives in Olathe. They got a nice big house and um, whatnot. And so we go and we just do something as a family. I got several brothers and sisters and my parents. And so there's like 13, 14 of us that get together. And so we went this weekend and we went to the city market downtown. You ever been there? downtown kansas city the big farmers market thing it's just cool there's all kinds of stuff going on you could eat food from all over the world it's just uh, an awesome vibe but as you're driving down there you don't really have many places to park and it's a pain and you realize you know what This is why people don't live here or people don't come here is because sometimes it's just a hassle. Then after that, we're like, all right, where do you guys want to go? So we went to Q39. It's a newer barbecue restaurant, and they got amazing brisket, and we were like, yeah, let's do that. And so we went over to Q39, and we didn't have reservations, but we got in, and the place at 11 o'clock in the morning is just packed out. We're like, gosh, it's good, but there's just so many people. Everywhere we go, it's just crowded. And then in the afternoon, we had to decide what do we want to do? And we could go to some other place that's packed full of people. Or we had some connections just down the street in Johnson County to a, a family that had a pool in their backyard. And Silas he had been doing swim lessons lately, so we decided we're going to go to this pool. And we walk in, and it's just awesome. And they've got all kinds of stuff. It's not just like an above-ground pool. It's an in-ground pool, and it's just beautiful. The backyard's fenced. It's just, it's just beautiful. If you've been to Johnson County, you know this is a nice area. And this house was no different. And Silas, he was so excited, and Tara and I are looking at each other like, oh, yeah, this is nice to have access to a private pool when everyone else is either at work or they got to go to a city pool, and it's going to be packed, and they, like, they don't get this. And I remember after a few minutes looking around at those who uh, lived there, and they were wonderful people. Um, but they weren't nearly as excited as we were. Now, it could be because we were in their house. That might have might, been why they weren't super pumped. But then my other family who um, lives just a few blocks away that goes there all the time, they weren't very excited either. Why? And I I realized, yeah, they have access to this all the time. And sometimes when you have access to something all the time, you start to take it for granted. And Solomon's saying, you guys, in his lifetime, he built a temple And he's seeing there's a disconnect. Y'all are coming in. You're not seeing this as serious anymore. And you're just just talking and flippantly walking in like you can do whatever you want. Hey, God's here, but no big deal. He's just a friend. He's here for the party. And we're going to talk. And he's saying, just zip it. Listen. Listen. This is holy ground. You see, Solomon prior to Solomon, uh, they just had the tabernacle. It was movable. It was what they called the tent of meeting, and they had the Ark of the Covenant. They had all kinds of uh, important relics in there, and this is where they, the people of Israel, would meet with God. And then around 930 BC, the first temple was built. So 3,000 years ago from now, uh, Solomon, he built the temple that his dad David hoped to build, and over seven years and 150,000 people, they built this temple, and it was amazing. Now, this temple only lasted for uh, a few hundred years in 586-87, in 586-87, uh, the Babylonians came, tore down the temple. There were 70 years where they didn't have a temple. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, remember when all that happened? Then they come back, they build a temple. That temple lasts until Jesus comes. And then in AD 70, that temple was destroyed. We haven't had a temple ever since, right? But going back to this temple, it was a place where God met with the people. And, and really, there's five different things that we need to know about the temple if you're brand new to the idea It's for the Israelite people. It was a place. Now, God didn't need a place on earth. Like, God created heaven and earth. He can be wherever he wants, whenever he wants. He's everywhere. But this was for the people. They needed a place where they could come and meet with God. And although there were synagogues, basically local churches around, Solomon said, I'm going to build a temple, a place where God can be. And so the second part of it is his presence. This is where God dwelt. Now, it wasn't only where God dwelt, but in the Holy of Holies, um, there was the presence of God. And if you got in this and you weren't supposed to be in this, and only the high priest could be in the Holy of Holies, if you did it and you weren't supposed to be, you would die immediately. But it's also a place, number three, where the people met. This is where they would come not only to offer sacrifices, but this was a gathering place. The feasts, the festivals, the temple courtyards were a place where people gathered to celebrate God. Number four, it was a place where there were priests who could minister between the people and God. There were lots of priests through the Levites. That was the family, the 12 tribes of uh, Israel. One of them was specifically gifted and told, this is your duty to be priests. But there was the great high priest. This was the one who um, had direct access to God. And then number five, the propitiation. This is where they came to offer sacrifices for their sins, where there was a substitute for their sins. And they had the Day of Atonement once a year where um, they they would um, cleanse all of Israel. But then they had fellowship offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, all kinds of offerings all throughout the year for their sin. And you can imagine this would have been crazy to see hundreds of people coming on a regular basis. If you read Leviticus, you get this picture. And some people are like, oh, Leviticus, it's so boring. But you just sit in that book and picture what it would have been like to have animals slaughtered over and over and over. Blood pouring out everywhere. And the idea that if you're in that, you're thinking, why? This is, this is is. There's blood everywhere. The massacre of animals. Like, what is happening? And the recognition. The, the recognition that this is a holy God and sinful people. And because of our brokenness, there, there has to be blood. Because it's the life that atones. If you're walking in that, you know it's serious. Matter of fact, they say back in First Kings chapter 8, when, um, when Solomon dedicated this temple, he said that he sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep within a seven-day period. You don't talk about blood. You don't talk about gore. You don't talk about people recognizing this is incredibly serious that God dwells here and that we can come even remotely close. But apparently, it didn't take long for them to start to take it for granted. Solomon says, listen. Listen. You're not here to impress God. So listen, Stop trying to talk and get his attention, like he doesn't know you're there. You say, "Well, Jesus changed things, right? And he did. This is the gospel that we have access to God because of the sacrificial lamb, that we don't need 120,000 to be sacrificed. kicking that party off that you got one through Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place for our sins. He is the perfect blameless lamb. You say, man, that changes everything it does because all of a sudden the place where God dwells is in you. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit is in us The people of God can gather wherever, and God is with us. The priest of God, well, Jesus now is our high priest, giving us access to the Father, and we are a nation of priests, and the propitiation is what Jesus did on the cross. And so you don't have to stand in front of God guilty anymore. So, now, let's connect the dots. You say, obviously, this whole idea of taking corporate worship serious, and the presence of God, and access to him serious, Surely we do great at it, right? Well, if your body's a temple, how well do you treat your body? If by treat, you mean Dairy Queen treats. Most of us are probably doing great, right? And if you just look at something like corporate worship, how much reverence do we have for that? Like when you come in tonight, were you expecting to encounter God? When you come on a Sunday... What are your views of the church? And I've straight up had people tell me that they come to church because it's a place to be seen. I've had people tell me out of their mouth, it's a country club. Don't tell the pastor that you come because you think it's a country club. I've had people tell me that it's a good place to network and make connections for their business. Some of us just flat out treat the church like a business. The congregation are the customers and, and the staff they're the ones who are going to provide goods and so what happens is you come in and you look around and you say okay good message i like the music what's going on here i like the decor this is a good vibe i feel at home and so then you tithe and you give offerings to the staff so that they can provide religious goods and services to you and all of a sudden it becomes about you the customer and what you want and because the customer's always right the staff and the leadership of the church feel like we need to bow down to the customer and so then we got to entertain and say, what's the most relevant, cool stuff that people will come to? And when the people don't get what they want, then they go to the next church where they get fed. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And all of a sudden we're calling our Sunday morning worship gathering services. Service to who? Us or God? And Solomon's saying, do you remember? Like this whole thing, this isn't about you. It's not about coming just flippantly like, like you're some drunken sailor walking in flippantly like, hey, this is about us, God. Here's my request. Here's what I need. He's saying, this is holy ground. This is, this is about God and his presence, not some preacher or, or music and their entertainment value for you. This is about his preferences. Not our opinions. This is about His presence. Not our status. It's about God. When you walk out of here tonight, when you wake up in the morning, how much do you think about the fact that you've got access to God? What worries, what drama, what issues do you have that even even need to be talked about when your focus and your mentality is I've got God, He trumps everything. That's just verse one, verse two and three. You guys know, and get serious quick. Verse two, He says. Now, don't make rash promises. We're going to talk about that uh, in verses 4 through 6 because that's what it's all about. And don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth. So let your words be few. And too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. Second thing you've got to remember when you're listening to God, you've got to remember who you're talking to. You've got to remember who you're talking to. You see, God is a father, and as his children, he wants to hear from you. There's all kinds of verses telling us that that we need to bring our our prayers, our petitions, our requests to God. He wants to hear from you because he loves you, and you're his child. But you ever have a a mom or a dad that you start talking back to just a little bit, and then they stop you, and they say, hey, don't you forget who you're talking to. Don't you forget who you're talking to. And you say, oh, we got a little too friendly. I forgot you're my mom. You're my dad. You're the authority figure. You're the boss. And Solomon's saying, don't forget who you're talking to. He says, don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. Now, again, he's not talking about God's desire to hear from us because we know throughout all of scripture, God desires to hear from you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to pour your heart out to him. But the idea of that is don't don't lose respect for the one you're talking to. If you've got an office, if any of you guys have offices, you know sometimes your employees have uh, kind of an open-door policy with you, but then there's times where you're working, and they just like barge in, and it doesn't matter what they've got. They're just assuming that what they have is more important than what you're doing. And, and there's a little something in you that just wants to look up at them and say, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And God's saying, you can come to me all the time, but have respect and recognize I'm the authority. And you're not. I'm in heaven and you're on earth. And so I want you to know I love you and I give you access to me, but don't forget who I am. And then verse 3, it's kind of hard to understand. And scholars debate this. The original Hebrew um, can be interpreted several ways. It says, this first part of it, too much activity gives you restless dreams. And the big issue with it, and this is where they debate, is that, and verse 7 reflects this, because um, there are basically common proverbs back in Solomon's day. And and it doesn't mean literal dreams or revelations, like you go to bed at night and you have a, a dream or you have a revelation from God or a vision from God. But it means more metaphorically, like um, here in America we'd say, Oh, you got big dreams, girl. Oh, you, you're, you're going you're gonna to be a star. You got dreams, right? And the idea that, um, especially in this context, you start to daydream. Enough, if you start thinking you are someone, you're not. And the big idea is we got too much pride when it comes to standing before God. It's important for us to understand the gospel is beautiful in that we have um, uh, Jesus showing us our incredible value. And, and the word of God says we should come to God with boldness and confidence before the throne of God. And yet what's important to remember, and Solomon's reiterating it, your boldness and confidence don't come from you. They come from what Jesus has done. They come from God. And you say, what does that matter? Oh, it matters. (laughs) It matters because God knows the heart. Let me ask you, a little bit of a litmus test, but um, when do you speak with the most thoughtfulness? Is it when you're with like your spouse or your close family, your immediate family, or your close friends? or acquaintances, coworkers, or strangers? Like, when do you watch your mouth the most? Most of us maybe uh, initially think, well, probably my family, my spouse, the people who were the most close to me, the ones I love the most are the ones that I'm watching my mouth around. But sit and think about it. When do you really say the most stupid stuff? I mean, in general, isn't it those who you're most familiar with, you let your guard down with? And the most, the people that you're most comfortable with, you say things that maybe you shouldn't say? If you don't believe me, ask my wife. You think I say stupid things to you? Uh, she she hears the stupidest of the stupid. Uh, for me, I know an acquaintance, probably who I'm going to be the most polite with, someone that like I know enough to say hi to, but they don't know enough about me to know who I am, right? Um, and you watch your mouth with them. Well, picture having an intimate, act, intimate relationship with God who you can't even see and how familiar you get with him. And all of a sudden, we got, we, got, we, we got bumper stickers that say, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my buddy. And all of a sudden, we start going to him like he's our bellhop. And he's there to listen, and Jesus is taking down all of our notes. What do you got? What do you got? What's happening? What's the drama? What's going on? And Solomon's saying, don't forget. Yeah, the Bible says Jesus is a friend, but Jesus is Lord. You want a picture of Jesus? not just some blonde-haired, blue-eyed dude here to wash your feet. Look at Revelation. He's got white hair. He's got fire in his eyes. He's got bronze feet. He's going to be riding a stallion. He's God. Who you're talking to. I think, um, I'm going to try not to go on a rant, Um, but I think the heartbeat of this, the seriousness of worship, not taking the presence of God, access to the Father who loves us for granted. Um, I see so many Christians in America, and I've been in this boat myself. And I struggle to make sure I don't climb into it on occasion. We are disillusioned, dissatisfied with our relationship with God. Discontent, even though we've got the God of the universe. And we don't know what to do. We know that God is God enough to where we're going to stay down this path. But like if someone asks us, we're not really that happy right now. Or when people say, how's your walk with God? We just say, well, I'm stagnant. I'm complacent. I'm a little bit apathetic. That's a kind way of saying, it's not good. Not Abby right now at all. And I say, as a pastor, like, how did this happen? I don't get it. I'm reading this book. And it's just like, God is amazing and he's holy and he's perfect and he's righteous. And and this whole story about him being God and us not and him loving us because he created us and him reconciling us to himself through the cross and just this beauty and this power. And I'm saying, why doesn't it look like that? Why are we not experiencing that? And, and, and this is where, when, when you take the faith and say, this nation is built on Christian principles, and you say, but we want to tie it in with the American dream, and so it's give me some Jesus, but give me my own desires, and all of a sudden we've taken a selfless faith that by very definition requires you to lose yourself when you come to him. And we say, I don't want to lose myself anymore, I just want an improved self. And we wonder why we're not satisfied with God. And he's saying, you haven't denied yourself. You haven't come after me. You're not walking with me. You're trying to drag me into your own situation and your own life and your own will and your own drama. And I'm saying the healing and the release, it comes when you lose yourself. When you say, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to choose daily to deny myself and my desires and my will for the sake of following him. And in that, you find life. And I say, so if we don't have life, if we don't have satisfaction as a church, maybe it's because we're just trying to include him in ours instead of laying down ours for his. Like, when was the last time? When was the last time you sought God, not for direction in your life, not to know, do I go here, do I go there, do I move here, do I move here, do I stay here, do I do I take this job, do I date this person, do, not direction, not comfort, oh God, I messed up, I got stuff going on, I just need you, come in and help me. Those things are good, but not comfort, not direction, not guidance, but just sought God for God. Not obligation, well, I'm a Christian, so I better start praying every now and then, otherwise... My grow group people are going to ask me and they're going to start thinking maybe I don't love God anymore so I need to at least tell them I kind of still follow Him a little bit. Not obligation, not guilt, but just sought God for God. I'm telling you what, if you wanted to see the quickest revival in America around the world, it would be when we make Christianity about God again and not so much about us. I said I was going to try not to do a rant, but I'm on a rant. We've watered it down and tried to make it so appealing for people and said, here's what you get out of the deal. Here's what you can have. Here's your personal relationship, like it's a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. Here you go. You can have it your way. Everything's great. And God's saying, that isn't the way. This was set up. I'm God and I'm worthy of worship. And it's not about what you get, even though you're going to find life and life in abundance when you follow me. It's about me. This book is not... It's not about you. It's about God. This faith, it's about God. When Christians say, you know what? Forget about where am I going to move next year? How am I going to get through this? What do I need God to bless me with? And just say, we're just, we just want God for God. We just, we're just going to worship him and we're just going to fall on our face because he's worthy. Like that's it. Boy, stop that fire. You can't. You're going to see life in abundance in ways that this nation has never seen. You're going to see revival throughout the world. I don't say that because I'm a prophet. I say that because I'm a lame historian and it's never been any different. If you look past, you say, anyone who's just given themselves up to God and stopped making it about themselves... they don't come back saying, "Well, I'm kind of dissatisfied." They don't. They don't they don't have that story. Remember who you're talking to? When you walk into a room, the people that think they're the most important will always do the most talking. And when you go to the throne room of God and and you're praying, One of the reasons why some of us talk so much and listen so little is because deep, deep down, we kind of think we're the center of the show. And God's there for me. And God's here to bless me and to help me. And Jesus says, come and die. Come and give your life. You'll find life. Verse 4. When you make a promise to God, so now we're talking about oaths and vows and promises. This is why I love walking verse by verse through Scripture. I'm probably not on any given week going to show up and say if I was just doing topical stuff, hey guys, I just want to talk to you about oaths and vows today. This has really been on my heart lately. I've been thinking about it like that's never happened to me. So we address stuff like this because you can't avoid it and you just have to preach all of the Bible. And I love it. I love it. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through. For God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It's better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. And don't let your mouth make you sin. You ever been there before? I've been there. And don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. You ever made excuses with God before? Why you can't do this or that? I've been there before. That would make God angry. And he might wipe out everything you have achieved. Third thing we see, you got to check your heart. This last verse, you say, what does that mean to make God angry that he might wipe out everything we've achieved? He's saying, God cares more about the work in your heart than the work of your hands. And if this is rotten here, this is rotten in his sight. Check your heart. Solomon's painting a picture. He's painting a picture of what, um, what worship should be and, unfortunately, what, for most of us, worship is currently. Now, let me just, right off the top, because the big theme here is vows and oaths and people swearing. Um, are, are they good? Are they bad? What, what's the deal? Well, the Bible um, would say both. Um, there's all kinds of vows in the Old Testament. People who who gave oaths, they made promises to God. And and when they were a sign of devotion or commitment, um, they could be good. If it was for a season or accompanied with fasting or something, where they said, God, I'm going to devote myself in this way to you. um, That was, you you might read in the New Testament about a Nazarite vow. Um, They wouldn't cut their hair for a length of time or in all kinds of different things. It was a way of devoting themselves to the Lord. So it was good. But then you read, it's not so good. Paul rebukes him a little bit about vows, taking silly vows. Um, Solomon's getting on him a little bit. Here you see Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, um, in an attempt to say, let, let you be a person of integrity. Um, your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take vows just randomly and flippantly, and it almost sounds like he's against them. Vows are a good thing, but the way that we live them out um, is where the issue often happens. So this is a picture that's painted. And I want to mention two things. When you check our heart, when you come to worship, whether it be tonight, whether you um, are spending time with God, wherever in solitude, check your heart with a couple things. And the first one is really kind of the, the vibe of this whole verse. And the second one will be very specific to this verse. The, the 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 vibe of it, when you just read this and you say, okay, this is what not to do, it sounds like in a lot of cases. Um, he's given what to do. The picture It's painted as one of self-centeredness. So the first question when you're checking your heart, when you're driving here on a Sunday morning, when you're coming in, when when you're spending time with the Lord at work, in the car, wherever, ask yourself, am I self-centered in this? There's a lot of us who have self-interest and are really in it for ourselves more than God, but we put it under the banner of we're here for God. I'm here to worship God. I'm going to sing to God but then we complain when we don't like the style of music. I'm here because I want to know God's word, but, you know, the preacher's just not very authentic, and sometimes um, I just don't feel like, I don't know, I connect with him very well. All of a sudden, you say, I thought thought it was just about hearing his word, but know your preferences and your own interests are involved here. And when you get this picture of people who are coming to the temple making promises, and they don't care about fulfilling these promises. They're just being flippant. And this isn't about God and glorifying him. It's about themselves. We do that on a regular basis. I got a phone call today, um, 32 minutes long, (laughs) 32 minutes long. And you say, how do you know that? Well, because I dreaded every minute of it. It was one of those random phone calls Um, I get a guy calling from some other state, supposedly, and he says, Well, I'm looking to move into Salina. Um, I'm X amount of years old. I'm retired. I can go wherever. I can do whatever I want. And uh, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions about the church. So harmless enough, right? But if you're in ministry for more than 10 seconds, you know, "Mm, this is kind of interesting. And he starts off, he says, "Uh, Pastor, do you fear God? I said, this is going to get weird quick. I just, there's, this is not a normal question. People don't usually just ask that. I said, yes, I do. Well, do you teach the fear of the Lord? I said, yes, I do. And he did. do you, um, do you believe um, that one could backslide and uh, possibly lose their salvation? I said, no, I I don't. I don't think we give ourselves salvations. I don't think we can lose it. And then he just went off. He went off and off and off. And he is telling me with every Bible verse ever, I, I think he, he, he just had like a script in front of him. And at first, he, he, he tried to keep pretty tame, but then he just got angrier and angrier. And he's telling me, well, you don't do this and you don't do that. This guy don't know me. You don't do this. You're, t- you're leading all these people astray. And I just, I said, I stopped him a couple times, and and I said, hey, what, what's, what are you doing? What, what do you want? I said, did you, when you picked up this phone, did you really want to build up God's church and ask questions about a church that you might potentially be a part of, or did you just want to argue? I said, what's your heart? He said, my heart is unified. And before you know it, it's just over and over and over. He's just drilling me, saying, you're going to hell. I want you to stand before God. I'm rebuking you. You need to repent. And when you stand before God, like just, just not very, and I told him like five times, I said, sir, I don't want to hang up on you. Um, I want to be polite to you. I want to respect you. Um, But I feel like this conversation is losing its value. And so um, if, if there's anything else I can help you with, he went in on divorce and some other issues. And then he kept telling me, "I." I said, I, "Sir, I don't want to hang up, but we're going to have to end this conversation if it's not going to be valuable." And and he he said, "I'm not, I'm not ending it. You can." And I'm just like, I can't, "I can't do this. I can't do this anymore." And finally, I said, "Sir, thank you for your call." He's like, "You're not thankful for it." I'm like, eh, "You might have caught me in a lie there, but <laughs> but then I hung up." And afterwards, afterwards, I um. I, did, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, if there was some truth in there that I need to repent of, help me to repent of it. But I was thinking to myself, that old boy legitimately thinks he's doing the kingdom of God good. Like he legitimately thinks that that's his ministry, that he can call up preachers from all over the country and just put them through the risk without even knowing what they believe. And yet it's just divisive. It's just silly. It's just a waste of time. And I think some of us, we do that with God. We, we think that we're serving him. We think that we're building the kingdom. We think that um, this is about God, and yet we're so selfish in it. We've got to check our hearts. The second question I would ask, and this really has to cover all of this, is when you talk to God, when we talk about vows and promises and all that stuff, um, are you a person of integrity? Like, do you really intend to keep these things? You ever made a promise to God? You ever made a vow to God? Let's be honest. We all have at some point, right? Usually, it takes place in crisis, doesn't it? Oh, God, if you just help me pay this bill, I promise I'll go on a mission trip. Oh, God, if you just let my girlfriend's pregnancy test be negative, I will never have premarital sex again this week. Oh, God, please. Oh, um, <laughs> Oh, God. If you just do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And then what happens? When the crisis ends, then we abandon our part of the vow, right? And we've got to be careful because oftentimes when people are hurt, we'll promise God something and someone's saying, you need to take this serious. We'll vow God, something. We'll, we'll go under oath for something because of our pain, that in the short term actually has long-term implications and we don't realize it and it actually messes things up with our walk with God. And here's what I mean. How how many of us have been hurt with something and we say, I'm never going to date again. I vow to never trust again. I was done wrong by that pastor or those church people. I'm never, I swear I'm never going to church again. And so in the moment of some hurt and pain, we make long-term decisions You say, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. When you say, I'm going to choose bitterness and resentment in an area of my life, you close off that area of your life from the lordship of Jesus. And you say, I'd rather take bitterness and anger and resentment because I was in the short-term hurt, but I made a long-term decision for myself or my family. And you're going to not only neglect healing that God wants, but also the lordship of Jesus. We're down the road you're in a marriage and you said 15 years ago, I'm never going to trust a guy again. And then all of a sudden your husband's saying, I don't know, we have trust issues and I'm trying so hard to build trust and I don't know why she won't trust me. And then you sit down with the wife and she says, well, I just can't trust guys. And my mama told me, and then I had this experience and I said, a long time ago, I'll never trust a guy again. And then you say, well, what can we do for you? You settled it in your mind years ago, and you won't let Jesus have lordship over that area of your life now. You've got to be careful when you make promises and vows to God. It's hard to listen to God in an area that you have completely closed off. And I think vows and promises, they can be good, and there's... um, there's value in them to some degree when they come to commitment and devotion. But I think there's a couple things worth mentioning where I think you and I have wrong thinking. And maybe some of the people who partake in verses 4 through 6 do as well. Number one, I think a lot of us make a promise or vow to God because we have wrong thinking of God. Say, God, if, if, if you just do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And, and the wrong thinking is... Don't you realize you're a child of God and he loves you and he's a good father and scripture's clear that like he he wants to bless you and your idea that he wouldn't bless me if I didn't somehow make a vow or promise to him to help him in some way. God's saying, you don't understand the father's heart. I love you. Doesn't mean he's gonna give you everything you ever desire. But for some of us, if we really got down to the nitty gritty of our walk with God, a lot of these vows and oaths and these little deals that we've made with God. The second thing is that. That we have wrong thinking when we make vows, often because we try to manipulate God. Like somehow we can deceive him or trick him into a better deal. Like we're some used car salesman. Well, God, I promise, I know I haven't kept my word before, but now it's going to change. As if God doesn't know our heart and our track record. And the reason this attitude and this wrong thinking hurts God's heart for many reasons, but one is because we often make these vows and promises and end up indebted to God. And the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus sets us free from our debt, that he's paid our ransom, that we have through the blood of Jesus our sins covered and we have freedom and yet how many Christians are saying I'm going to somehow forget the gospel and just try to work out this side deal with God and I'm going to feel guilty if I can't um, uh, fulfill my end but I'm going to be angry if he doesn't fulfill his end and God's saying quit trying to make little side covenants with me when I've got the new covenant and it has to do with Jesus and my favor comes through him and you're my child and I love you and you don't have to do things out of guilt and you can't manipulate me you don't have to try to impress me. I just love you. Can you believe it? Can you believe that I just love you? And I want to bless you in times and in some things that aren't my will, I'm not going to. And that's still going to be a blessing. So you say, well, what do I do if I've made promises to God? I've vowed things to God and it's putting me through this cycle of shame and guilt and Anger towards him when he doesn't do exactly what I want. Number one, if you made promises to God and they're good promises, they're, they're good things, then fulfill them like Solomon says. And then don't make any more. And number two, if you found yourself vowing stupid things over the years that maybe you didn't even take serious back in the day, but as I'm speaking to you tonight, I'm never going to date again. I'm, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to serve again. I'm never going to this again. Then Repent. And trust the gospel that Jesus sets you free from your silly, sinful decisions and, and mistakes. And don't vow again. <laughs> Vows can be good, but not when our hearts are wrong. In verse 7, and last but not least, we'll wrap it up with this. He says, talk is cheap. You ever heard that? Talk is cheap. Like daydreams and other useless activities, fear God instead. Fear God instead. Last but not least, if you're going to listen to God, you've got to have a foundation of fear. This might sound odd to you, but this is beautiful. A foundation of fear. You ask throughout this, how, as we talk about it, how do I prepare in corporate worship or alone in solitude to meet with God? How do I have a right heart with God? How do I listen to God? And I could give you five practical steps that all Christians need to do and we could write a blog about it and it'd be amazing. Man, I don't know. Some of those practical steps are good. To me, this is as practical as it gets. This is so foundational and so important that if you don't, if you don't grasp this little tidbit in the last five minutes, you're always going to have a hard time listening to Him. You see, fear... It's a huge theme in the Bible all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, and throughout Ecclesiastes. This is a big theme in this book, is the fear of the Lord. And normally when we think of fear, we don't think of it as a good thing, but fear is both good and bad, and the Bible speaks of it in both ways. It tells us to fear the Lord, but it also tells us over and over and over not to fear. Sometimes they're combined. There's an angel or something appears to someone, and you're supposed to fear God, and they're down on their face, and then they say, don't fear. And you're like, what? I thought we were supposed to fear. No, we're not. Okay, what is it? There's healthy fear. There's bad fear. Bad fear are things that make you worry and insecure and not trust God's provision and his sovereignty and to try to make you want to take control of your life because maybe you're not trusting God. Like if you fear provision, the Bible says don't fear that. Don't worry. Like God will take care of you. If he takes care of the birds of the air, the sparrows, he's going to take care of you you clothe the flowers of the field, like he's going to take care of you. So that's a good example of what the Bible says. Don't fear that. But then there's a healthy fear, a fear of God. The Bible says you should fear God. You say, what does that mean? It doesn't seem like a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately for non-believers, they're told over and over, if you just neglect this whole book, if you don't care about this, if you want to do your own thing in life, you're going to fear judgment. You're going to fear hell. Hell wasn't created for people. It was created for angels, but people get to go there too. If they don't have faith in Jesus, I can't believe he'd preach hellfire and brimstone. I'm preaching in the Bible, man. And it's true. You see, God's going to get glory from every human life one way or another. And you get to choose which way. He can get the glory of saving your soul on earth or a perfect, just God. And for those who reject him, they go to hell. And you might not understand it, but he even gets glory from that. Because judges don't like throwing guys in jail. But when they do, they're doing the right thing. That's why we want them to be judges. And God's a great judge. For Christians, you say, well, how in the world are we supposed to fear God? Well, we fear God in a way that we respect him, but that we're in awe of him. Not that he's going to rip salvation from our hands or that he's a a weird, twisted father who doesn't know how to interact with his kids and holds us emotionally hostage or manipulates us. Not not that kind of fear. He's a perfect father. He loves us. He's not going to say, I save you, but then if you screw up now, you're not saved. He's not messing with us that way. But we fear him in the same way. That you recognize when you have an authoritative person in your life, whether it be a parent or a boss or, or whatever, and you realize, hey, my parent, when you're growing up, I respect dad. I fear dad, not because I'm scared he's going to kick me out of the house, but because he is who he is, and he's an authoritative dad, and he disciplines me out of love, but he's still dad. It's <laughs> healthy just to have a little bit of fear for dad. And God's an amazing God. He's all powerful. And when we see him face to face, if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, we would die immediately. And that fear always remains. That's a good fear. It's a fear of respect. It's the kind of fear that you have when you're at the zoo. And if you happen to see, and I hope it doesn't happen to you, it hadn't happened to me. Thank God I don't have that sermon story. And you're walking by the lion's den and you see that gate just happen to be propped open and you look and you realize there's nothing standing between me. And and that lion, and there's something inside of you saying, I'm not such a big shot anymore. And there's something right in front of me that has the power to demolish me. That's why, as a pastor, I love going to national parks because I like to feel small. Because sometimes in my own little world, I can have pride that I am somebody. And I need to remind myself over and over I'm small, God is big. Not the, not the biggest one on the food chain. Because God's always above us. You say, well, what what value ultimately then is there in, in fearing God? Well, I would sum it up as place and position. When you fear God as a Christian, you recognize I'm putting God in his proper place as a king on a throne above me. And that's the position he is should always have, but then also our place and position. When you fear God, it puts you in your place. It makes you feel and recognize I am uh, in my place and God is God and I am not. But it also puts you in a daily position of humility and listening. Because when you walk into a room again and you know someone who is, is more wise than you and you respect and they are authoritative and you realize I, I want to glean from them, you listen to them. They command your attention. So your daily position becomes one not of, I'm going to flippantly come to God randomly whenever I've got something to say to him as much as, I'm waking up this morning. I got God. I can listen to God. I can walk with God. I can hear from God. And that's the kind of disposition we all need. Listen, I don't know what this does to you, but I I can imagine part of Solomon's heart in saying this to us tonight is he knows you and I get comfortable and we take things for granted and, and, and we become stagnant. Listen, when I, when I was younger, I used to have a full head of hair. I know that's hard to believe. Sometimes I see old pictures. I used to part my hair. I can't remember which way I parted it, but I used to part it until some guy told me I looked like a choir boy. And take me off, and I never parted my hair again because I didn't want to be a choir boy. This was back in the day. I still don't want to be a choir boy. And and then when I got in high school, I used to do this little number and kind of like move it together, put some gel in there. I wouldn't leave the house without hairspray, right? And then when the hair started going away a little bit, um, I, I would just spike it up to try to make it fill in itself a little bit. And, and then I started seeing pictures as Tara and I, the more we were, the years went on in marriage. I'd see pictures, i would be like, whoa. That's my head. And I'd see the baldness in the pictures, but I don't see it in the mirror. I'm like, I'm trying to look. I can't see. I feel like I still have hair. And you want to know a secret? You guys ready for this? To this day, when I wake up in the morning, I put some water on my hair and I take a comb and I comb my stinking hair just like I did back in the day. And Tara, when she sees it, she says, baby, baby, you ain't got no hair. And then she touches my hair and I smack her hand away. I said, don't mess up my hair. She said, baby, there's nothing to mess up. You don't have any hair. She feels so sorry for me. I think Solomon writes something like this because he's at the end of his life and he's seen how humans live and how they take things for granted and how they don't listen to God and how powerful God is and what we have right in front of our face. And he says, some of you, you, you remember Back in the day, fondly, when your relationship with God was on fire and you were excited and you heard from God and you walked with God and and that call, God's amazing. And and you're going through the motions and this is a wake-up call. God's amazing. And his presence is powerful and you get a walk with him every day, all day because of what Jesus has done. And it drowns out every bit of drama, everything that is ailing you, everything that you come to the table and say, I need God because of this. God says, when you just get a taste of me, you won't even remember what you came here about. You'll just stand before me like a little kid sitting in front of a sage saying, teach me. I got nothing. You got everything. You listen when you sit in solitude. You listen when you're in his word. You listen when you say, okay, God, I'm in prayer. And God speaks through your conscience. Sometimes he speaks through your heart. Sometimes his word just grasps your heart. And you listen and you listen. And when he speaks, you'll find out it's hard to be spiritually burned out when he's lighting you on fire every day. And that happens when you listen. So spend some time with him. Listen to him changes everything. Let's pray.